Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Boy Fortune Hunters in Alaska by Floyd Akers. Volume 6, Chapter 17, We Give Up the Ship. The flipper made good time and sighted the Oregon coast on the morning of the fifth day. From there she followed the dim outlines of the distant land down to the Golden Gate and cast anchor safely and without event in the Bay of San Francisco. The Major had been sullen and ill-tempered during the entire voyage, but although he made repeated efforts to see Captain Gay privately and renew his request for the location of the Golden Island, that officer positively refused to hold any further communication with him. Therefore, the Major was helpless. After all, the Captain might be speaking the entire truth, and if so, all argument was useless. Threats do not affect a man of his temperament, and beyond threats, the Major did not care to go, even to secure the information he wished. Bribery in this case was absurd. Therefore, nothing could be done but bear the disappointment with good grace. The Major's fortune was, for the present, ample, and I wondered why he should ever care to visit that island again. As soon as the anchors were dropped, the miners clamored to be set ashore, and by night they all had quit the ship and established themselves in lodgings in the town, from whence they at once flocked to bankers and began to turn their golden grains into cash. Uncle Naboth and I remained on board another day. There were settlements to be made with the sailors and various other details that needed attention at the close of the voyage, so I was kept busy with my book of accounts, and Uncle Naboth stood constantly at my elbow to give me the necessary instructions. We both longed to be on shore again, however, so as soon as the last formalities were completed, we put our heavy sacks of gold into a boat and carried them to the docks, from whence an escort of our trusty sailors accompanied us to the bank wherein Mr. Perkins was accustomed to keep his deposits. So many ships had lately returned from Alaska bearing gold from the mines that Mr. Perkins' heavy deposit aroused no wonder except to its extent, and the banker warmly congratulated him upon his good fortune in making so successful a voyage. Both Uncle Naboth and I remained at the bank until every sack of gold had been carefully weighed and sealed, and the proper receipt given. Then, breathing freely for the first time since the gold had been in our possession, we repaired to my uncle's former lodging house, where Mr. Perkins was warmly welcomed. "'We'll have the best dinner tonight the establishment can set up, Sam, my boy,' said the old man, rubbing his hands gleefully together. "'For we've got to celebrate the success of the new partnership.' You must have brought the firm luck, my lad, for this here is the biggest haul I've heard of since I've been in the business. We're rich, newy rich as pumpkins. How much do you suppose we're worth, Uncle? I inquired rather curiously. I can't tell you exactly, of course, till after we got the proper quality of our gold properly graded and put on the market. But my opinion is we're at least $50,000 to the good. As much as that? I exclaimed, greatly elated. Full as much, I judge. Then I can pay Mrs. Rank that $400 I owe her for my board, I said, drawing a sigh of relief. Uncle Naboth made a wry face at me. It's a shame to throw good money away on that old termagant, he remarked. And I've no doubt she's been overpaid already by stealing the contents of Captain Steele's chest. But if it would make you feel easier in your mind, Sam... I'll fix it so you can send her the money as soon as you like. Thank you, Uncle, 
I replied gratefully. I'll never be happy until that debt is off my shoulders. Whether she's entitled to the money or not, I promised her to pay the debt, and I want to keep my word. A steel always pays his debts. And so you shall, said Uncle Naboth with an approving nod. We feasted royally at dinner, and afterwards Uncle Naboth took me to the theater, where we sat in the top gallery among the crowd of laborers and sailors, but enjoyed the play very much indeed. Some folks who had just banked fifty thousand, remarked my uncle reflectively, would want to sit down there among them nabobs in a seat that cost a dollar apiece, or perhaps two dollars for all I know. But what's the use, Sam? Do they hear or see any better than we do up here? Probably not, I answered with a smile. Then we're getting as much fun for our quarter as they're getting for their dollar, declared Uncle Naboth, chuckling. And tomorrow morning we'll be so much richer and nothing lost by it, Sam. The secret of spending money ain't putting on airs. It's in getting all the pleasure out of a nickel that the nickel will buy. Live high is my motto, but do it economical. That's the true philosophy of life. The next morning, as we were sitting in Uncle Naboth's little room, we were surprised by the entrance of Captain Gay. He was accompanied by two of the sailors from the flipper, bearing in their arms the easily recognized canvas sacks of gold from the island. The captain motioned his men to place the sacks upon the rickety table, which nearly collapsed underneath the weight, and then ordered them to leave the room. When they were gone, he carefully closed the door and turning to my uncle, said abruptly, "'There, sir, is every grain of gold I got in that accursed island. The most of it was given to me for turning the bed of the mountain stream, as you will remember.' "'No more than you deserve, sir,' said Uncle Naboth, puffing his pipe vigorously. "'It ought to be worth a great deal of money,' continued the captain, his voice faltering slightly. Twenty thousand at least, in my judgment.' said Uncle Naboth, eyeing the sacks. "'Well, sir,' announced Captain Gay with decision, "'I want to exchange this gold for the bill of sale of the ship.' "'What? The flipper?' "'Yes, sir.' Uncle Naboth winked at me gravely as if to convey the suggestion that the man had gone crazy. "'Captain,' he said after a pause, "'I don't mean to say as Sam and I won't sell the ship if you'd like to buy her.' But the tub is old and has seen her best days. She's only worth about $6,000 all told, and not a penny more. You must take all that gold or nothing, sir. What do you mean? asked my uncle in amazement. Captain Gay sat down and looked thoughtfully out the window. Perhaps I must take you into my confidence, he remarked in his slow, quiet tones. Although at first I had thought this action would be unnecessary... I have an idea I'd like to own a ship myself, and to trade in a small way between here and Portland. And the Golden Island occasionally, eh, Captain? returned Uncle Naboth shrewdly. I heard from Sam here how you lost the paper containing your observations, but I suppose you could find that place again if you wanted to. Captain Gay flushed a deep red. Sir, he answered, you wrong me with your suspicions. I shall never revisit that island under any circumstances, nor do I wish anyone else to do so. That is the true explanation of why I lost that paper. Did you lose it, then? No, I threw it overboard. Uncle Naboth whistled. 
I am free to confess, sir, that I am all at sea here. The captain arose and paced the room with unusual agitation. Mr. Perkins, he started, I once had an older brother who, when a boy, robbed my father and ran away from home. I never saw him again until we reached that island, where I recognized my erring brother in the man who called himself Daggett. Uncle Naboth scratched a match and relit his pipe. I marked the resemblance between you, but I never thought nothing of it. To my grief, I saw that he had not altered his course for the better, resumed the captain. Of his final theft of the gold and the awful judgment that overtook him and his fellows, you are well aware. I shall never forget the horror of those days, sir. It seems to me... That isolated, unknown island is my brother's tomb, where he must lie until the call of the last judgment. I do not wish anyone ever to visit that spot again if I can help it. That's nonsense, declared Uncle Naboth coldly. Perhaps so, but that's the way I feel. That's why I don't wish to touch the gold. I'll take the ship in exchange for it, but I won't use the stuff in any other way, or have anything more to do with it. You're foolish, said Uncle Naboth, with a sternness quite foreign to his nature. But if you really want to give away a matter of twenty thousand dollars for an old hulk that's worth about six, I'll let you have your way. That is my desire, sir, announced our visitor meekly. Well then, we'll go to a lawyer and draw papers. Sam, you stay here and look after the gold till I get back. "'Very well, sir,' I replied, full of wonder at this queer business transaction. Together they left the room, and it was an hour before Mr. Perkins returned. "'I signed for us both, partner,' he said briskly. "'And the flipper is now the sole property of Captain Gay. "'With the money this gold will bring, we could buy a ship twice as good as the old one, "'in which, with good luck to back us, we ought to make Mary a prosperous voyage.' "'Why do you think he did it, sir?' I inquired musingly. It's one of two things, my boy. Either the man's a bit cracked, as I've sometimes suspected, and really feels sentimental about his brother's death, or else he's got a sly scheme to make trips to the island in an old ship that won't attract attention and bring away many cargoes of gold. That ain't so unlikely, Sam. No one will remark on Captain Gaze owning the old ship he's commanded for years. But if he bought a new one and started out for the island... He might be watched and his true business suspected. Either the old fellow's mighty deep or mighty innocent. But it ain't our business to decide which. We've got the money, and now we'll look for a newer and finer ship. New England's the best place to buy a good ship, sir. I often heard my father say so, I suggested. Then let's go to New England, returned Uncle Naboth promptly. We'll travel together, and you can run up to Batteraft and pay that old hag her money. I'd like to do that, I said, greatly pleased. It would do me good to see her surprise when she finds out I've earned so much money already. Then it's all settled, declared Uncle Naboth. I'll go up to the village with you and see fair play. T'would be a fine chance to give that cankered Venus a piece of my mind, just as a parting shot, you know. Would you dare, sir? I asked, recollecting his former experience with Mrs. Rank. Would I dare? 
Do you take me for a coward, then? demanded the old man indignantly. No, sir, but I remember what happened. Never mind that, Sam. I was worried about other things that day and wasn't quite myself. But now, well, just wait till I get the old serpent face to face, that's all. All right, Uncle. When are we going to leave? Just as soon as we've paid all the bills and settled our accounts for the last voyage. A week will do that, I reckon. And now, partner, just run out and hire a closed carriage, and we'll get Cotton Gay's gold to the bank as soon as possible. Sam, my boy, if the streak of luck holds good, we'll be the envy of the Rocky Fellers in a few years. Chapter 18 Uncle Nabot's Revenge Ten days later, having paid all our indebtedness and converted every ounce of our gold into ready money that was deposited to the credit of Perkins and Steele at the bank, we started on what Uncle Naboth called our voyage across the continent. We had both taken a strong liking for Ned Britton, who had stood by us so faithfully at the island, so Mr. Perkins decided to make Ned the mate of the new ship when she was purchased. For this reason, and because the sailor wished to revisit some of his relatives in the east, and make them happy by sharing with them his prize money, Ned also traveled on the same train with us. Britain's judgment will be useful in helping us pick out a ship, said the old man. I'm glad he's coming with us. Nux and Bryonia had promptly deserted the flipper as soon as they found that Captain Gay had purchased her, and I think my hardest task was to leave the simple black men behind me. They declared that they belonged to the firm and must be given places on the new ship, and this both Uncle Naboth and I were anxious to do, as we knew we could never again find such loyal and unselfish servants. But it would be folly to take them east until all arrangements had been made, so I found them comfortable lodgings and supplied them with all the money they could possibly require until they were sent for. At the last moment they were at the station to see the train move away, and were so fearful of the iron monster that was to carry their friends on the journey that they cautioned me again and again to be very careful in my actions. Before all, Master Sam, said Nux earnestly, don't you go skeer that engine on no count. When it's skeert, it smashes everything into mush. It appears gentle enough now, Sam, added Bry, but don't you trust it no how. Tain't safe, like a great sail in a stiff breeze. Right you are, lad. Engines is an invention of the devil cried Uncle Naboth approvingly. But good Christians, Bry, can use them if they only watch out. And now, goodbye, and take care of yourselves till we get back or send for ya. On account of our great wealth, Mr. Perkins had decided to take a tourist sleeping car for the trip, rather than sit up in the seats of the common cars all night. Sleeping cars is a genuine luxury, Sam, and only fit for the very rich, who have got so much money they won't miss it. For the very poor who have got so little, there's no use saving it. I guess we can afford the treat, and the bunks in this here tourist car is just as big as the ones in the high-priced coaches ahead. So as soon as we get clear of Frisco, let's go to bed. But it's not dark yet, Uncle, I protested. It won't be bedtime for hours. Sam, do you mean to say you're going to pay for a bed and let it lay idle? That's what I call rank extravagance said the old man earnestly. I've seen it done on me travels, of course. I've known a man to pay three dollars for a bed and then sat up half the night in the smoking cars before he turns in. 
But you suppose the railroad company pays him back half that money? Never. They just laughs at him and keeps the whole three dollars. To pay for a thing and use it ain't extravagance. But to buy a bed and then set up half the night is. Why, it's like paying for a haughty dinner and then skipping half the courses. Would a sensible man do that? Not if he's hungry, uncle, I said laughing at his philosophy. If he ain't hungry, boy, he buys a sandwich and not a haughty meal, cried Uncle Naboth triumphantly. Nevertheless, being fully conscious of my newly acquired wealth, I recklessly sat up until bedtime while my thrifty uncle occupied his bunk and snored peacefully. The journey was accomplished in safety, and from Boston we took the little railway to the seaport town of Bataraft. During the last hours of the trip, Uncle Naboth had become very thankful, and I frequently noticed him making laborious memoranda with his pencil on the backs of envelopes and scraps of paper which he took from his wallet. Finally, I asked, What are you writing down, Uncle? I'm just jotting down the things I mean to say to that old female shark at Batteraft. I tell you, Sam, she's going to have the talking tour of her life when I get at her, and she'll deserve every word of it. I'll let you pay her first, so as the money account will be square, and then I'll try to square the moral account. Will she let you? I inquired doubtfully, for I had a vivid remembrance of Mrs. Rank's dislike of any opposition. She can't help herself, replied Uncle Naboth seriously. If you knew the things she up and said to me that day I tackled her before, Sam, and the harsh and impotent tone she used to say him, you'd realize how much revenge means to me. Why didn't you resent it then, Uncle? She took me by surprise, and I didn't have time to collect me paragraphs, and that's the reason. And it's the reason I'm figuring out my speeches aforehand this time, so as I won't be backwards when the time comes. You can't thrash the cantankerous old termagan like you would a man, but you can lash her with speeches that cuts like a two-edged sword. At sarcasm and ironical wit, I'm quite a professor, Sam. But them talents would be wasted on Mrs. Rank. With her, I'll open me vials of wrath and empty him to the dregs. I'll wither her with scorn and, and, and tell her just what I think of her. He concluded rather lamely. I sighed, for the mention of Mrs. Rank always recalled to me the fate of my poor father. The landscape began to grow very familiar now, and presently the train swung into the little station, where I had so often stood in my younger days to watch the passengers get on and off the cars. Ned Britton at once walked on to the tavern, but as the afternoon was only half gone, Uncle Naboth and I decided to go up to my father's old home without delay and have our carefully planned interview with Mrs. Rank. The banknotes I was to pay to her lay crisply in my new pocketbook, and I was eager to be free of my debt to the cruel woman who had aspersed my dead father's character and driven me from my old home. Uncle Naboth walked very fast at first, but while we ascended the little hill, his pace grew gradually slower, and as we reached the well-remembered bench beneath the trees, from whence our first view of the cottage was obtained, my uncle suddenly sat himself down and wiped the perspiration from his forehead with the well-remembered crimson handkerchief. "'We'll rest a minute, Sam, so as I can get my breath back,' he gasped. "'I'll need it all presently, and hill-climbing ain't my special accomplishment.' So I sat down beside him and waited patiently, sadly eyeing the entire time 
the old home where I had once been so happy. It seemed not to have changed in any way since I left. The blinds of my little room in the attic were closed, but those of the lower floor were thrown back and a column of thin smoke ascended lazily from the chimney, showing that the place was still inhabited. In spite of myself, I shivered. The autumn air struck me as being chilly for the first time, and the declining sun moved slowly behind a cloud, throwing the same gloom over the landscape that was already in my heart. "'Are you ready, Uncle?' I asked, unable to bear the suspense longer. "'Just a minute, Sam. Let's see. The opening shot was this way. "'There's folks, ma'am, that can be more heartless than the brutes, "'more slyer than a roaring tiger, more fiercer than a yellow fox, and—' "'That isn't right, Uncle Naboth. The fox is sly, and the tiger is—' "'I know, I know. Them speeches is getting sort of mixed up in my mind.' But if that she-devil don't quail when she hears him, my name ain't Naboth Perkins. Perhaps I ought to have committed him more to memory, eh, Sam? What do you say to wait until tomorrow? No, Uncle. Let's go to her now. You can reserve your vials of wrath if you want, but I shan't sleep a wink until I pay her that money. All right, said the old man with assumed cheerfulness. There's no time like the present, then. Never put off till tomorrow, you know. Come along, my boy. Annie sprang up and led the way with alacrity for a few steps and then slackened his pace perceptibly. If I'm going to forget all them speeches, I might just as well have saved my time a composing them. Drat the old she-pirate. If she wasn't a woman, I'd pitch her into the sea. He whispered all this in a voice that trembled slightly. By this time, I was myself too much agitated to pay attention to my uncle's evident fright on the eve of battle. The house was very near now. A few steps further, and we were standing upon the little porch. "'You knock, Uncle,' I said in a whisper. Uncle Naboth glanced at me reproachfully and then raised his knuckles. But before they touched the panel of the door, he paused, drew out his handkerchief, and again wiped his brow. I felt that my nerves would bear no further strain. With the desperation of despair, or a sudden accession of courage, I never knew which, I rapped loudly on the door. There was a moment of profound silence, followed by a peculiar sound. Thump. 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 It echoed from the room inside at regular intervals, and then the door was opened suddenly by a man with a wooden leg. He was clothed in sailor fashion, and a bushy beard ornamented his round, frank face. For an instant we three stood regarding one another in mute wonder. The open door disclosed the long living room, at the back end of which Mrs. Rank stood by the kitchen table with a plate in one hand and a towel in the other, motionless as a marble statue, and with a look of terror fixed upon her white face. Singularly enough, I was the first to recover from my surprise. Dad! I cried in a glad voice, and threw myself joyfully into the sailor man's arms. "'Why, Captain Steele, sir, what does this mean?' faltered Uncle Naboth. "'I thought she was dead and gone long ago, and safe in Davy Jones' locker.'" Chapter 19 The Conquest of Mrs. Rank I regret to say that my father's welcome was not especially cordial. Nonetheless, he was, for some reason, evidently pleased by the sudden appearance of his son and his brother-in-law, Releasing himself gently from my clinging embrace, he said in his deep, grave voice, Come in, sit down. I never thought to see you again, Sam. 
and much less you, Naboth Perkins. But now that you're here, we'll have a few mutual explanations. Mrs. Rank, a few paces behind him, was bristling like a frightened cat. If them thieves and scoundrels enters this house, I'll go out! She fairly screamed in her shrill voice. Be quiet, commanded the captain sternly. This is my house, and although it's all that my friends have left to me, I'm still the master under my own roof. Sit down, Perkins. Sit down, Sam, my lad, he added bitterly. A sudden tenderness that crept into the last words seemed to rouse the woman to fury. That's the boy that robbed you, she cried, pointing at me a trembling bony finger. That's the boy that skinned the house of all your valuables and treasures as soon as he thought you were dead and couldn't come back to punish him and stole me savings too and swore he'd be a pirate and murder and steal all his life. And that man aided and abetted him in his wickedness she said, turning fiercely upon my horrified uncle. And they threatened to kill me if I interfered with Sam's carrying away of your property. Captain Steele, how dare you harbor such varmints? Drive him out this instant, or I'll go myself. This house can't hold Sam Steele, the robber, and me at the same time. Captain Steele looked toward me gravely as I stood, regarding the woman with unmistakable amazement. Then he turned to Naboth Perkins, to find the little man doubled up in his chair, shaking with silent laughter. A moment later, he began to choke and gasp and cough, until just as he appeared to be on the verge of convulsions, he suddenly straightened up and wiped the tears from his eyes. Cotton steel, sir. This is the best show I've ever had a reserve seat for, and the admission's free gratis for nothing. Why, you measly old she-tiger? He turned with a stern abruptness to Mrs. Rank, did you ever think for a minute that such a lying tale as you trumped up would deceive grown men? Mrs. Rank turned away and caught her shawl from a peg. I'll go, she said sullenly. No, you don't. You'll stay right here till this mystery is cleared up. Mr. Perkins bowed between her and the door of her room, toward which she was hastening. For if I understand Captain Steele aright, he can't find the property he left in this house, nor imagine what became of it. And you've been stuffing him with lies about Sam's running away with it. Am I right, Captain? My father nodded, gazing with lowering brow upon the cowed and trembling form of the housekeeper. The Captain's property and his savings didn't walk away by themselves, continued Uncle Naboth. And no one could have took him except Sam or this woman. Very good. They're both here now. And you're going to clear up the mystery and get your money back, Captain, before you take it your eyes off any of us. Just flop into that chair, Mrs. Rank, and if you try to wriggle away, I'll call the police. The woman obeyed. A dull glaze had come over her eyes, and her features were white and set. In all her cunning plotting, she never imagined that I or my uncle would ever return to Batteraft to confound her. She believed that the knowledge that I was in her debt would prevent my coming back in any event, and she fully expected me to be buffeted here and there about the world, with never a chance of my being heard of again in my old home. What a mistake she had made. But it was all owing to this fat little man whom she had driven thoughtlessly from her door the day I was sent away into exile. She had never heard of Naboth Perkins before, nor did she know, any more than I did myself at the time, of the partnership formerly existing between the two men, or even the fact of their relationship. She felt that she was caught in a trap in some unexpected way, and the disaster stunned her. 
Captain Steele filled and lit his pipe before the silence of the little group was broken again. Then turning to me, he asked, Why did you believe I was dead? One of your sailors brought the news, sir, and told us of the wreck. He gave Mrs. Rank your watch and ring, which he believed were taken from your dead body. It's a lie! I've never seen the watch and ring! The woman snapped desperately. But he said the captain was dead all right, and that's why Sam ran away with the property! Who was the sailor? inquired my father thoughtfully. Ned Britton, sir. Aye, had an honest, worthy lad who sailed with me for years. He had the watch and ring. Yes, sir. Ned was taken with a fever when he escaped from the wreck, and after he recovered, they told him that several bodies had been washed ashore and buried by the villagers. On one of the bodies, they found the watch and ring, so Ned naturally thought you were dead. When the ship broke up, said the captain slowly, and I knew the end had come, I sent one of my lads to my cabin to get my trinkets while I attended to lowering the boats. I never saw him again. For my part, my leg was crushed by a falling mast, but I got entangled in the rigging and the mast floated me to a little island where a dozen fisher folk lived. One was a bit of a doctor and cut away my mangled leg and nursed me back to life. While I waited for a ship to touch the island, I regained my strength and made myself a new leg out of cottonwood. Then one day a schooner carried me to Plymouth, and the captain, who was a kindly man, loaned me enough money to bring me to Batteraft, where I thought I'd find my savings, enough to buy a new ship and start business again. But Mrs. Rank met me with the news that my son had stripped the house of all my valuables and run away with a man known to be a pirate. My room was quite bare, I found, and Mrs. Rank claimed she had hardly enough left of her savings to buy food. So here I was, a cripple and condemned to poverty after a successful career. It's no wonder my thoughts were bitter toward my son, whom I never would have believed would act so ungratefully. My only comfort was that Sam had believed me dead. Uncle Naboth nodded approval. Quite proper, sir, and all quite right in ship shape. Sam didn't take a penny's worth from the house, but I made him a partner in your place, and we've had a successful voyage and come back rich as Croesus. You'll live in clover from this time on, Captain Steele, even if you never get back the property Mrs. Rank has robbed you of. But why not make her give it back? She can't have squandered it all on riotous living by the looks of her. Captain Steele turned to the housekeeper. What do you have to say, Mrs. Rank? He asked. It's all a pack of lies, she snarled. But there's no call for you to believe me if you don't want to. One thing's certain, though. This house and the deed of it's in my name. You'll have to clear out of here, all three of you, or I'll have the law on you and have you put out. Captain Steele rose calmly, seized the woman by her arms. In spite of her screams and struggles, he carried her to his own little room and thrust her in, locking the door safely behind her. Now, he said, let's explore the place and see what we can find. I've never been in Mrs. Rank's room, for until today I had no suspicions of her. Come with me. If she's honest, we'll find nothing, for she can't have disposed of all of the property. Right you are, sir, cried Uncle Naboth, springing up, and all three of us at once proceeded to enter the room the housekeeper had for so many years reserved for her own use. It was simply and plainly furnished, and a single glance served to convince us that it contained no evidence whatever of the missing property. Strange, said my father musingly. There were nine cases and three chests, 
besides the great sea chest that I found still in my room, although emptied of all its content, whatever could have become of them all. Dad, I exclaimed suddenly, I remember there used to be a sort of cellar under this room that could only be reached by a trap door. True, replied my father. I remember that too, but where's the trap? Uncle Naboth was already making a careful inspection of the old rag carpet that covered the floor. In one corner, the tack seemed far apart and scanty. He seized the carpet and jerked it away from the fastenings, disclosing a small square trap with an iron ring in the center. Here's the treasure house, sir, he announced triumphantly. Get a candle, Sam, said my father gravely. When it was brought, all three of us descended the narrow stairs to the underground room where the cases and chests were speedily found, all stored in orderly fashion against the walls. The contents of the great sea chest, which she had doubtless removed before admitting me to the captain's room, had been placed in boxes which Mrs. Rank had secured from the grocery store. In addition to Captain Steele's property, there was also a brass kettle almost full of gold and silver coins, which the miserly old woman had saved from the money my father had given her to clothe and care for me as well as to defray the household expenses while the sailor was away on his voyages. Perhaps her own wages were added to the store as well. Anyway, Captain Steele seemed to think so, for after assuming himself that all his missing property was safe, he carried the kettle up to the living room and proceeded to liberate Mrs. Rank. When scowling but subdued, she crept from the little room. My father offered to give her the entire contents of the kettle if she would freely transfer to him the deed to the house and quit Batarat for good. It's more than you deserve, he said, but I don't want to go to the police in this matter unless you force me to. Take the money and go, and never let me see your face in Batarat again. Of course, she accepted the generous proposition. After gathering her few clothes into a bundle, she took her treasure and left the house. The first train that left Batarat carried her away with it, and I have never seen her again. I acknowledged that I watched her go with a lighter and happier heart than I had known for months. It was just like this that she drove me away from home, Dad, I said. But it can't be such a bad world after all, for if the wicked sometimes appear to triumph, they are usually punished in the end, and now that Mrs. Rank has passed out of our lives, we ought to be happy again. We will be, Sam, returned my father earnestly, as he affectionately pressed my hand. Hooray! yelled Uncle Naboth. Chapter 20 Steel, Perkins, and Steel Captain Steele was extremely grateful to Uncle Naboth for his care of me, and was delighted by the relation of our adventures on the Golden Island, as well as pardonably proud of the financial success we had attained. A new firm was created under the title of Steel, Perkins, and Steel and a new ship was soon found that seemed to have been especially constructed to meet our requirements. Captain Steele, declaring that his wooden leg would in no way interfere with his usefulness, decided to command the ship himself, and Ned Britton was made first mate. Uncle Naboth and I were appointed to look after all the finances and attend to the trading at the various ports, and Knox and Bryonia were brought from San Francisco and given posts on the new ship to their great delight. By the advice of his shrewder brother-in-law, my father converted all his accumulated treasures into money, which was safely invested in government bonds that were deposited in a Boston bank. Whatever happens now, observed Uncle Naboth, 
nobody can rob you again. And if our business ventures prove unsuccessful and Sam and I go bankrupt, you've always got something to fall back on in your old age. But success seemed to follow in the wake of the new firm, and the Cleopatra, as our new ship was named, has made voyage after voyage with unvarying good fortune. The End We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of the Boy Fortune Hunters in Alaska by Floyd Akers. Your narrator has been Jim Campanella. The heroic opening slash closing theme was written by Cristiano Zata and was called Oceanward Heroes. It is available on SoundDogs.com for those of you who are interested. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>